0: Listen to the Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at Patreon.com slash Astonishing Legends. I wanted to do some show and tell. No, this is an impoltergeist.
1: Oh, look at his mouth. His mouth is yeah. going crazy.
0: So- well, that egg is 7,000 years old. Well, it's considered the Roswell of South America. FOIA request, which it's not clear who requested it. I'll put it in the private chat. Just tell me the name. I got him right here. New clothes coming out. We got coffee. Believe it or not, I'll step okay.
1: out for a bit and uh, okay. grab a sandwich, maybe. It looks more like a rubber duck from your bathtub. Bleary
0: eyed, doom scrolling at two in the morning.
2: Astonishing legends would like to thank Simply Safe, Policy Genius, Mint Mobile, our contributors at patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
1: For our last show of October 2023, we wanted to bring you something very special. Perspective. Perspective on the bigger picture. After all, if you've been with Astonishing Legends for more than a few years now, we're well past the 100 and 200 level courses. You're all embarking on your postgraduate paranormal master's degree, and tonight it's time to start developing your thesis. There's nothing quite like looking back at a body of work or experiences and realizing that in totality you have acquired a new perspective one that comes from collecting data, lots of it, and then reviewing it, over and over and over again, looking for patterns. Patterns you could never have seen if you hadn't collected all that data in the first place. This is called experience, and, well, education. At Astonishing Legends, we teach things that very few schools are going to offer you a chance to study, We hope to show you how to consider and evaluate the folklore, legends, stories, experiences, and tales that most universities won't touch. They fear ridicule at being ostracized, so they simply look away from the unexplainable. But not you. You look right at it. Or you wouldn't be here. And tonight, it's time to look some more and think for yourself. What does all of this mean? We may never know, but if not, It certainly won't be because we didn't try.
0: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook,
1: and this is Forrest Burgess. The trickster is found worldwide. Superficially, his tales seem little more than entertaining stories for children, but they encode important truths the trickster is central to many religious beliefs, and some of the tales are sacred. In fact, a number of cultures permit only a few persons to tell the stories and restrict what they can be told because they have a power of their own. George P. Hansen, The Trickster and the Paranormal. Join us tonight for our 2023 Halloween special. And we're back. Happy Halloween.
0: Yes. Happy Halloween, everyone. We hope we've managed to keep you entertained this year. We have sure had a blast producing these shows, and tonight is no different.
1: This is true, and we do have a lot to get to for this very special show tonight, but a very few quick program notes, as they used to say in the old days. For one, I was just on our friend Bradley Netherton's show, Opening the Doors where we talked about all of the references to the band The Doors and Jim Morrison made on The Simpsons over the years. And you know, Scott, those writers are geniuses and they predict the future and there's always these little fun Easter egg connections. And anyway, yeah, it's a lot of fun.
0: That's so much fun. I love Bradley. He's, he was one of our best uh, junk drawer guests, too. Yeah. So, uh, folks, look for Opening the Doors wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you've been following our feed this month and you've enjoyed the first two episodes of the newest show from the Astonishing Legends Network, Scared All the Time, it's time to find and subscribe to that show on its own feed, because that's where you'll find the third show and every show after that from here on out.
1: Yeah, folks, if Scared All the Time is Your Jam, look for it anywhere you get your podcasts and subscribe to it ASAP. Those guys are going to be churning them out weekly until their first season is done, so it's a great place to stay entertained on our dark weeks.
0: Yes, and don't miss the newest Halloween Midnight Library this weekend. Miranda has, of course, done it right once again. And don't forget Mr. Darling. Oh, I would never. (laughs) All right, let's get started here. So uh, we just wanted to offer a little setup here. We have a wonderful guest joining us later in the show tonight, but before we get to them, we wanted to set the stage for where everything we're going to talk about tonight takes place.
1: Yes. Well, in doing that, we're going to be going over a wide series of highly unusual events that seem to be taking place at this location because the totality of all of that sets the stage for the show overall. Yes, as we
0: alluded to in the cold open, you'll hear individual stories and themes, and then our guest is going to share one of the freakier encounters we've ever recorded. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to look mm. for a through line in all of this, mm. because as we say...
1: Everything is connected.
0: Yeah, yeah, you didn't. I feel like you took too long to... You got to get to it. Oh, escort. well, you know, we well no, that's the... Time, the that's the. You, you weren't ready. <laughs> no, that's the lag. Okay,
1: that'll just it it was
0: like a half hour. All right. Well, uh, we're going to be touching on some very specific events here leading up to our guest story later in the show. We feel compelled to say this, though. This is not a Bigfoot episode. And it's not really a UFO episode. And it's not a ghost episode or... or. Or Skinwalker Ranch episode. Well, the list goes on, but it does touch on all of the above
1: well it's beyond skinwalker rich not to yeah. uh <laughs> it could have showed up on that show as well which is just as terrific i enjoyed that one very much as well there's a lot going on here though that's connected to this geography and it does that with a a point in mind and, and touching on all of this because we're seeing a pattern here that we've mentioned before on the show but tonight we want to make sure you see it too so you know common ground kind of things shall we say across all these stories or a through line or just some how shall we say spooky action at a distance some residue
0: yes and when you look at all this stuff together and you hear our guest Jay's story
1: tonight it really does make you start to question reality it does and i do wonder about the entanglement of high strangeness in all this but first things first let's set the geographical stage here so welcome to the Mogion Rim
0: Ah, yes. The Mogollon Rim. And boy, was this hard to figure out how to pronounce. I know people get sick of us talking about pronouncing things, but this uh, is spelled M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N, but everyone says Mogollon. Some people put a little N in there at the end of the first syllable, some don't. There's a gi, even though it's Go. <laughs>
1: I, you know, I don't know. It, it is. Called. And once again, I don't know if it's Arizona. I mean, we see this everywhere. Certainly Southern Illinois has a lot of that yes. with Cairo. That's for Sarah. <laughs> you can laugh and chuckle and giggle yeah. and, and smirk and roll her eyes at me. No, the idea here, though, is that uh, it, it's not quite the Prescott prescott debate, but you'll see here as I explain this where the name comes from, how it's been, of course, anglicized, as you could say. So the Magian Rim in Arizona, the name Magian comes from the Spanish governor of New Mexico, who governed there from 1712 to 1715. Don Juan Ignacio Flores Mogollon. Nice. No comment? No, that's that's my comment. That was nice. Folks, you should have heard Sarah cut out about five minutes of uh, Scott correcting me on that. Moving on, yes, he was the Spanish governor of New Spain, which now includes what is now New Mexico. And again, that's from 1712 to 1715. But the name was chosen by archaeologist Emil W. H-A-U-R-Y, in 1936. So he chose it. He defined uh, where it should be applied. And as we said, modern residents now pronounce it Magyuan or Mangián. Sometimes you hear a little bit of an N in there. That's why we don't want to... Yeah,
0: I'm going to do already. the Mangyuan and the Mangyuan Rim.
1: Okay. Well, the Mangyuan Rim is a geological feature called an escarpment, which is mostly two level areas of land having different elevations and are separated by a wide or steeply sloping rock mass. And this usually occurs on larger scales from a planar fracture fault due to plate tectonic forces in the Earth's crust. Escarpments form as the result of this faulting or from erosion as with the Mogollon Rim. And because of the faulting and erosion, Mogollon features canyons like Pine Canyon and Fossil Creek Canyon. And at its most dramatic, there are high cliffs of limestone and sandstone quite vulnerable to erosion. And once again, maybe porous rock like this contributes to capturing the weirdness. That's my little theory there, perhaps. It's just, yeah, limestone, yeah. good for um, high strangeness. Yeah, and it's also
0: geographically violent. It's a violent area. But, you know, it's it's taking place over millions of years, but what's happening there is there's, it's a lot of force behind it, yeah.
1: If you had a, a multi-million time-lapse camera, it would look quite dramatic. Yeah. So, exactly. Well, two of these spectacular cliffs are the Kaibab Limestone Cliff and the Coconino Sandstone Cliff. And the rim shares several rock formations with Grand Canyon walls. You can kind of see that same uh, layering there. And here's another interesting fact the white cliffs of the Coconino Sandstone, forming the rim's uppermost stratum, can run several hundred feet high. And their ancient windblown formation is one of the thickest sandstone formations originating from sand dunes on Earth. Oh, that's, so that's quite that's prestigious interesting. and interesting. Well, the Mogollon Rim forms the southern boundary of the Colorado Plateau in Arizona, running approximately 200 miles long, or 320 kilometers, across the northern half of the state in northern Yavapai County, and extending eastward where it tapers out near the border with New Mexico. Interstate 17, going from Flagstaff to Phoenix, just about cuts the rim region in half. Another popular town many of you have heard of uh, near the Mulgillon Rim is Sedona, Arizona, known for its beauty and magical, mystical, metaphysical, and spiritual qualities. And a little later on, we'll talk specifically about a stretch near Highway 260 between two other rim-adjacent towns of Payson and Pinetop Lakeside. Now, getting to the description physically of it, there appears to be like an Alpha Omega or both ends of the spectrum aspect about the Mogion Rim, perhaps adding to its mystique. South of the Rim, the average elevation is about 4,000 to 5,000 feet or about 1,200 to 1,500 meters above sea level, with the higher plateau reaching around 8,000 feet or 2,400 meters to the north. So you get a remarkable ecological boundary between two distinct environments, the high-elevation cold winters with light snow dusting the vast ponderosa pine forests of the northern plateau and the hot, hot summers of a Sonoran desert environment to the south, where the winter temperatures seldom dip below freezing. So this makes for a lot of biodiversity in this transitional zone of the differing elevations. For the animal and plant life of the rim, it also makes for a significant ecological boundary where you have typical rocky mountain species habitat on the high plateau and Mexican Sierra Madre, occidental native species to the south on the slopes and are what are called the Madrian Sky Islands. And those geological features are interesting because they're clusters of smaller high-elevation mountain ranges found to the south in Arizona, southwestern New Mexico, and northwestern Mexico. The Sky Island region of the Magian Rim is found on its higher elevation, the eastern side, and is bordered by the White Mountains of eastern Arizona, which is also the southern Anasazi area. Yeah, we know that's a lot of direction to keep in mind here, but I found the Anasazi connection quite interesting. Other interesting tidbits about the Mogollon Rim. Zane Grey, you've heard of him, of Scott? Course, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, the famed Western novelist. Yeah, he built a hunting cabin on the slopes of the rim above Payson, Arizona, near Tonto Creek. And you've heard of Gettle Air Conditioners? Yes, I have actually. <laughs> well, William Gettle was from Phoenix, taking advantage of I I would guess. Going out of limb here, the monumental need for air conditioning there, I would bet. And he restored Zane Gray's cabin in the 1960s, but sadly, it was destroyed later in 1990 by the Dude Fire. And don't tell me that dude is pronounced something other than dude, because to me, the dude abides. The dude abides. So that's a little bit about the geology, the flora, the fauna, about uh, the rim. It's kind of a fascinating, beautiful place. Just look at photos online just from people who've been there hiking around and it's spectacular. It's breathtaking. And it would be to be there.
0: You and I have spent time there uh, together. A little bit. Yeah. We we, went, uh, yeah, the Overland uh, expedition. This was a while back. We actually have pictures of us at Mormon Lake, which is uh is right, right there. We stayed in Flagstaff, which we've talked about before, but and I've been to Sedona with my wife and family, which is also beautiful. It is really a very beautiful part of the country. I, I love I love this area. And I love the feeling too when you talk about the Ponderosa Pines on those mm-hmm. higher elevations. It's the same vibe you get when you get near the south rim anyway of the Grand Canyon. It's right. flat right. and there's these beautiful tall evergreen trees and giant elk running mm-hmm. around.
1: It's very cool. And apparently sometimes a thin place, but always, always the beauty of it. But I think yes, when you get right. to, you have extremes of geology sometimes. I, I think the native peoples also recognize that, that it makes a special place that it will, yeah. it's at least a place that you notice. And I think for them, that's a reason to pay attention to it. There's something going on here just beyond plate tectonics. There's something spiritual and uh, you should take notice but it's also something to be enjoyed. And I often wonder, as with this place, like, well, who were the first human beings to kind of stomp on the terra there? Well, the ancient indigenous population of the region is known as the Mogollon culture, which was one of the larger Southwestern cultural divisions there. So they were very prominent in the area and very widespread. And as you said about the Grand Canyon, one thing I noticed is that, yeah, it's covering a lot of miles, but the geology, is connected to so many other things that we won't get too deep into here. Just want to give you an overview. But yes, the Grand Canyon, the various cultures of the the Hopi, the Anasazi, they all have touched this region, you could say. That's the feeling I get. There's a through line here and it's just the land and the people and the different timelines. And if you had a time-lapse camera going a thousand years, 8,000 years, 10,000 years, 20, 30, you could see a dreamlike Occupation and then a fading away of different cultures coming in, having an imprint on the land, and maybe some things that are timeless, immortal, staying. But the Mangyang culture is, that's how we know of it. It's an archaeological culture at this point with Native American peoples from the whole region of uh, southern New Mexico, Arizona, and then you're talking about northern Mexico and western Texas, and the whole northern aspect of this culture is called Oasis America, while the, the southern regions of the Mangyong culture is known as Arido America. Now, judging by the archaeology, it's thought to have uh, flourished in this archaic period from about 200 current era to either 1450 or maybe uh, 1540 current era when the Spanish started arriving, and we know that by, again, that uh, gentleman Emil Howry. Uh, who was doing excavations in the early 30s, places such as Harris Village in Mimbres, New Mexico, the Mongian Village on the upper San Francisco River in New Mexico. And how we know people, again, this is why I love uh, talking about another through line about our uh, education here over the years, that you learn about these people through what they leave behind. And in this case, their pit houses, the uh, kivas, remember those? We talked about those a little bit. Uh, you visited some, you remember them?
0: Yeah, it's the a prominent Anasazi culture. There's a, a ton right. of them in uh, Chaco Canyon and Canyon de Chelly, and right. the cliff dwellings there. It's very cool stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And And so we have pottery that's left behind and the differences in those, you can gauge the time periods and the cultures because of their styles, their technology of the time. Same thing again with, uh, we talk about the Nazca lines and, and how do we know about these people and where do they get their influences and where the migrations of these people come from. And so as the years pass, those things are left behind and then different things come in and different cultures. It's fascinating to me, but one perhaps problematic thing is that now you have various speculations by experts on the actual origins of these people And no one really knows. So there's different theories. One of the theories that you can easily find on this Wikipedia entry for it all, uh, because it's quite lengthy, is that uh, the Mogollon emerged from the desert archaic tradition, which first came into the area maybe around 9,000 BC. So that's just one theory. Another is that they migrated in from farming regions uh, around 3,500 BC from Mexico. And another, uh, the third, is that they descended from the Cochise culture. And this is, again, judging by their pit houses, what they left behind, and some evidence left behind around 5000 BC. So this is all just to say, not to get too technical here, but that this is a very ancient culture who occupied this area. And I think just as we know, like, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean anything's going to be spooky. As many of the stories we get, people will have a lot of uh, weird things going on in a brand new house. But maybe it's the land. Maybe they brought it in themselves. Maybe it's the people. There's a lot of factors going on here. So it's not to say that just because some place is ancient, that you're going to have some uh, high strangeness attached. But it doesn't hurt in the equation, is my point. Right. Well, after the mongyan culture kind of fades away, who comes into the region, perhaps hundreds of years or, or maybe thousands after them, were the Apache people coming in from the north, but they're essentially culturally unrelated. And then even amongst different peoples of the southwest, you have some debate amongst them about who they descended from and who were their ancestors, because you have Pueblo people uh, from the southwest claiming descent from the Monguyan. And then you have archeologists claiming some connection between uh, the Monguyan and Hopi and Zuni peoples. And so a lot of this, again, is just from the ceramics that we have left behind, the cultural traditions, but it's all very murky, very nebulous, but we do have some traditions that remain today. And that's what Scott's gonna talk about here. But before you get started, I wanted to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine, a longtime friend from college, Carrie, who is from Flagstaff. And has taken uh, visual anthropology classes. That's what he was taking when we when we met in college, and so he's got a keen fascination with all this, and also a great collector of stories. I got a lot of my ideas and fascinating inspirations from stories that he's given me. So I asked him recently because we're going to cover this, and I shared uh, one of the stories that we're going to talk about tonight with him, and he said, "You know what? I have visited a few times, of course, camp there as a scout and." One of the stories that's pervasive that you hear told around the, the campfire there is about the mogion monster. And our guest even mentioned it. And now here's the thing about that. We have not conversed. He just sent an email back. He said, you know, let me ask some of my friends who grew up there if they have any more information because it's not just this monster. There's a lot of other weird things happening there. He did say about the monsters like, well, you know, you hear a lot of tales around the campfire. Nobody's got any specific facts. It's a lot like an urban legend. Because again, he's the kind of guy that will go to the library and look this stuff up and start uh, making notes about it. And he says, "There was never any solid leads to go find a name or anybody to research or ask about." You know, it's just one of those things where people saw this sighting. And, and that's a lot of the oral traditions that we have that have passed down is that it keeps you uh, entertained but also wary and vigilant about your surroundings, and, and that is probably part of the reason why we have these stories. Respect the land. Watch where you're going. Don't upset anybody, including monsters. Right. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Anastasia. Now back to the show.
0: So let's talk about the Mogion Monster a little bit. It is a grueling 100-mile race along the Mogion Rim with over 20,000 feet of total climbing during the course of it. The highest elevation you reach is 8,000 feet and the lowest is
1: 5,200, or roughly the altitude of Denver. I see. Yes. You know, I also saw this and uh, apparently you are not talking about the right Mogion Monster. The nocturnal, oh. Omnivorous, the the Apex Predator. You're talking about the, uh, oh, the race. Oh,
0: yes, yes, that one. Yeah. Well, okay, so yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I got the wrong one there. So one of the well, earliest hold on, hold on,
1: hold on a second, back yeah. up. You know, I will give yeah. you a pass on this because what have we learned, Scott? Wherever there's a local regional monster, there's usually yeah. an event, a race. Yeah. La Nain Rouge has got a parade. Yeah. There's, yeah, people celebrate yeah. their local- strange creatures and beings and so uh it's part of it you got to mention that because of course if we didn't we'd get emails like yeah. by
0: the way i think that race would be a lot more intense if the mogion monster was actually chasing everyone that was running the race that would be good
1: no it's a hundred miles some new records yeah hundred miles <laughs> tremendous but. elevation changes i don't think it needs to be any more intense i think if you're going to if you're going to race it at all you either survive or don't
0: Well, traditionally, the earliest mention of the real Mungillian monster, the actual being, is from an article called The Grand Canyon Wildman from the Wednesday, Mm -hmm. June 3rd
1: issue of the Arizona Republican. Yeah. What year was that? 1903 was when the article came out. Okay. All right then. Well, this happened in Mojave County at the extreme lower end of the Grand Canyon. So this is the northwest corner of Arizona. And it would also be north and west of Mogollon Rim on what is today the Hualapai Indian Reservation.
0: Yeah, so this is, it's not the Grand Canyon you think about or have visited most likely. It's at the far western end of it.
1: Right, but this guy I.W. Stevens said that in 1901 he went on a trip in the area and he and a friend built a boat and then he went out on the Colorado River. So listen to this excerpt from his story. Two years ago, says Mr. Stevens, I had business in the northwestern
0: part of Arizona that took me in the neighborhood of the extreme lower end of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River in Mojave County, Arizona. Having the misfortune of getting my arm broken, I took a trip to the river to kill time and catch a few beaver. I constructed a skiff with the aid of a friend, and when my arm got strong enough, I went up the canyon as far as I could go with a boat, a few miles above the entrance. I hauled my boat upon the sand and got ready to examine the rock walls. The first thing that attracted my attention was the imprint of bare feet in the sand. Thinking the tracks had been made by some Indian, perhaps a Paiute or Hualapai, I began looking the gorge over with much interest. Going downstream a short distance, I found more tracks. The third day of my stay, I saw the head of a man on a bench of rocks on the north side of the river. Evidently, he was seated on the edge of the cliff some distance above my camp. I rode upstream a little, above the point where I saw the man's head and part of his shoulders above the greasewood brush. Climbing up to the bench, I had some difficulty in finding a place that I could get over the ledge and be on level with my strange neighbor. I finally succeeded in approaching closer to the point. I saw sitting on a large boulder a man with long white hair and matted beard that reached to his knees. The creature was unaware of my approach, and I gazed upon him for some moments unobserved. He was about fifty yards away, and in full view. He wore no clothing, and upon his talon-like fingers were claws at least two inches long. Mm. A coat of gray hair nearly covered his body, with here and there a spot of dirty skin showing. I had found the wild man of the rocks. At that moment, a rock loosened by some animal came rolling down. The creature turned his face toward me. Horrors! What a face it was, seared and burned brown by the sun with fiery green eyes. With a wild whoop and a leap, he was up over the rocks and cliffs like a mountain sheep for about 75 yards. Then he stopped. He was armed with a queer-shaped club, large enough to fell an ox. Brandishing this bludgeon, he shrieked and chattered for a moment, then started toward me, roaring and still flourishing his weapon. Faster and faster he came, and my hair began to stiffen. I am a poor runner, so I stood my ground. When the creature was within about 15 yards of me, I raised my rifle to fire, thinking to cripple him. As I glanced along the barrel, I heard a growl just above the wild man. He had also heard the growl and braced himself for the shock. I drew a hasty bead on the cougar and pressed the trigger. When the smoke had cleared away, the mother cougar lay dead where the wild man stood. The man himself had disappeared. The two young cougars were still on the rock, apparently greatly frightened by the report and echoes of my old sharps rifle. Reaching hastily for a cartridge, I found I had neglected to buckle on my belt when leaving camp. So I hastily retreated to the boat where I found everything as I had left it. I shoved the boat off and drifted toward camp, which was near the cougars. There lay the old cougar where she had fallen. The wild man was standing over the two cubs, which were also dead. He, having beat the life out of them, with a club. He stood a moment gazing on the carcasses, then got down on hands and knees and drank the warm blood as it flowed from the death wounds. The sight sickened me. I stood up in the boat and yelled. The man sprang to his feet, took a long look at me, then fled up from ledge to ledge until he reached the fourth ledge where he stopped. Here he flourished his club again and screaming the wildest, most unearthly screech I ever heard, then turned and sprang up the craggy wall of the canyon. Not fancying my wild neighbor, I packed my outfit into the boat and drifted down and out of the canyon before I made camp for the night. That was the strangest adventure of my life. So that's the story that is generally attributed to the first sort of monster or Mogion monster Mm -hmm. sighting in the area. The last paragraph of it, which I didn't read, by the way, it speculates, and there's a lot of different theories on the origin of who this person or thing might have been, Mm -hmm. but the last paragraph speculates that maybe it was the last surviving member of three men who had been kidnapped years earlier by a local tribe and set adrift on the river tied to logs now possibly insane from the experience and living in the wild. I mean, who knows if that's true, but this story is one of the earliest ones connected to the idea of a monster in the area. Now, it's hard to know with journalism at the time what Stevens actually saw, but, you know, I don't know, it sounded, I'll say that it sounded human to me because this was, you know, it's the early 1900s and Stevens said this took place two years prior to when the story came out. The story came out in 1903, so this would have been 1901 sometime, theoretically, and at that point, I think it is plausible for people to be living in the wild who have uh, gone off grid, shall we say, and sort of oh, sure. maybe lost their marbles.
1: Well, there's all kinds of stories about wildmen. That's a whole genre in itself. And yeah, they're exactly. not always horrible. <laughs> there's There was one in, I believe, Australia. Well, they're all over. But one was captured and he was OK. He just preferred to uh, live in the trees. And it freaks people out. My point here, though, is I think we have to be careful in saying or thinking or surmising that this is the origin of some kind of creature that's also tacked on or shellacked over something else. Because as we can see, this is perhaps the first mention by a European not by right. native peoples here, and a lot of right. times we've seen this and with so that bigfoot. doesn't make
0: it the first case.
1: Yeah, we saw this a lot, and then you know again, it's with the uh, bigfoot of the northwest. as people say, well, that didn't really happen until you know someone so mentioned that in the paper, or maybe there's something you know, Box Canyon, something, blah blah blah. It, it, well, we don't have anything earlier than that. It's like, have you talked to the natives because they have hundreds of years of, of this kind of sighting and stories, right. and they're owned. Right. Legends, And we're going to get into a little bit of that today here. But like I said, it's interesting to track this to this type of thing. But let's be careful in not saying that this is exactly what it is, because I've heard other stories or there's legends passed down where it doesn't really sound like a human or does inhuman things not by the grotesqueness of its actions. Well, and also at the time,
0: Stevens just might not have had a frame of reference. He might not have been able to describe yeah. something non-human because it might have never occurred to him that anything non-human could have possibly been there.
1: Right, right.
0: So that's the other thing that happens.
1: Yeah, there's all these different layers and and then uh, people are quick to file this away. As a hoax or this and that, or it's a Mulhattan, Joseph Mulhattan story, talking about the region here. And that's all we need to know. But that's usually, often, almost always, perhaps not the end of the story. So, what about the story of Bill Spade?
0: All right. So, in this story, a young man built a cabin on a large tract of land that is today a Boy Scout camp known as Camp Geronimo, just north of Payson, Arizona, which we've already mentioned a few times. And according to the legend, he was attacked at his cabin one night by the Mungion Monster.
1: And when people came looking for him, the only thing they could find was his face, which had been torn off and was hanging from a tree. They say that the monster could be seen lurking around that cabin for years after that.
0: Ooh, that's nasty. That is when the first thing you think when you hear a story like that is let's put mm-hmm. a Boy
1: Scout camp here.
0: It's the perfect <laughs> place for kids to come and camp out. Oh, come on. No, I, I I love that story. It's the craziest one. There's another version of it where it's the the young man and his wife are both killed and their heads are left on sticks. Uh, that, yeah. that goes a couple of different ways. But a little cursory research points to that one. Shocker. Not too likely mm-hmm. to be true. Mm. However, uh, there is the story of Don Davis. This is considered right. one of the more credible ones. And he passed away in 2002, but he was camping as a Boy Scout along Tonto Creek, just below the Monguion River when he was 13 or 14 in the mid-1940s when he heard something rummaging through his troop's gear in the middle of the night. He called out to a thing it was probably one of his other troop members, and a huge hairy creature came over to his sleeping bag and stood there staring down at him.
1: Momo? Well, whatever it was, it was covered in hair, smelled horrifically bad, and it ate all of their food, including pancake flour. Not just the egg salad sandwiches uh, that Momo right. was fond of. But again, yep, yeah, same things, bad smell, long hair. Well, this story, by the way, comes to us from the March 2nd issue, 2016, of the Payson Roundup and was written by Chuck Jacobs in the end. No one got hurt, but they were all scared pretty bad, apparently. I think I would be too. And here's a quote often attributed to Davis himself on the incident, quote, The creature was huge. Its eyes were deep-set and hard to see, but they seemed expressionless. His face seemed pretty much devoid of hair, but there seemed to be hair along the sides of his face. His chest, shoulders, and arms were massive, especially the upper arms, easily upwards of six inches in diameter, perhaps much, much more. I could see he was pretty hairy, but didn't observe really how thick the body hair was. The face head was very square, square sides, and squared up chin like a box. That is unusual.
0: Yeah. Well, Don actually grew up to become a cryptozoologist, which of course some people are like, oh, well, there you go. He wanted to see it. But I would submit that (laughs) with most of the cryptozoologists that we've met since we got started, pretty much every single one of them got into it because of a personal experience that had already happened to them. We'll add that several sources indicate that the other boys in the troop, many of whom Mm -hmm. are still alive, still insist
1: to this day that Don's astonishing legend is true. Right. Well, sometimes that happens. You see something you can't explain and it, leads you on a lifelong quest. On the other hand, well, like our our good friend Stan Gordon, who I would also count among the ranks of cryptozoologists and ufologists and everything else is because he studied everything. He's never seen anything. Strange, much like yeah. myself. I've never seen anything That's like that That's in the wild, but true. Sure. But it, it depends on the person. Yeah, sometimes, uh, well, we've seen all kinds of stories now as uh, Halloween is nearing here that there are several ways to react to these kind of things. Either it fascinates you for the rest of your life, or I don't ever want to see that again. So I'm going to make that not possible. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want other people to talk about it. I want to read anything like that because it's just so upsetting. But some people, yeah, it's you have a fascination and then some people actually do something with it. So indeed. Well, now, according to the book of the Mogollon Monster, Arizona's Bigfoot by Susan Farnsworth, the indigenous people in the area have known about the Mogollon Monster for a long time. And there are even rock carvings warning people to stay away from certain areas. At one point, according to a longtime resident, an entire mountain... Escudilla Mountain, was set on fire in the early 1900s, possibly to try and flush the monster out.
0: Yeah, they burned the whole thing.
1: Yeah, but we know he's just going to evaporate into another dimension.
0: Yeah, he's going to take his Snickers bar and go. But only
1: after his s'mores are well melted.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, in September of 2006, members of the local White Mountain Apache Nation, in a story at Tucson.com, which is connected to the Arizona Daily Star, talked Mm. about an increase in sightings in their community and on the Mogollon Rim. Listen to these excerpts from that article. This was written by Scott Davis. Quote, for years, the White Mountain Apache Nation has kept the secret within tribal boundaries. We're not prone to easily talk to outsiders, said spokeswoman Colette Altaha. But there have been more sightings than ever before. It cannot be ignored any longer. No one's had a negative encounter with it, said Marjorie Grimes, who lives in Whitewater, the primary town on the reservation. Grimes is one of many who claim to have seen the creature over the last 25 years. Her first sighting was in 1982. Her most recent was in the summer of 2004, driving home from the town of Sibiquiou. She becomes more animated as the memory comes forth. Quote, it was all black and it was tall. The way it walked, it was taking big strides. I put on the brakes and raced back and looked between the two trees where it was and it was gone, End quote. Grimes' son Francis has a story. Their neighbor, Cecil Hendricks, has a story. Even police officers have had strange encounters. Officer Catherine Montoya has seen it twice. On a recent Monday night, dozens of people called into the tribe's radio station, KNNB, to talk about what they'd
1: seen. Others came in in person. In the White Mounds last year, investigators found footprints, several tufts of hair, and other material at the scene of a sighting. Tribal police made plaster casts from the prints and sent hair and plant samples to the Department of Public Safety for analysis in its state-of-the-art crime lab, and test results showed the hair was not human but animal in origin and further testing to determine what kind of an animal was not done. That's, <laughs> it always stops at some point. It's like, yeah, this is I weird, know, but we're going to stop it. there. Well, it costs a lot. Well, of money you know, it's expensive. Like, this kind of testing is expensive. And sometimes no, it destroys the samples too. That's true. And then people will point to, it's like, well, it's always uh, it's bear poop and bear hair and deer hair yeah. and other kinds of hair. And it's like, yeah, so nobody's really sent it a good sample. And uh, on the other hand, not every facility or individual or group has the money or time to sample poop in a Ziploc. So it just doesn't yeah, happen. I think true. there's a lot of things that, but yes, you're right. It's like people will find a clump of hair. They think it's unusual. They send it in. They find it's deer hair. However, I would like to point out way back when we did the Yeti <laughs> series that Mark Evans goes to the Himalayas with a geneticist and a couple other people, and they they see a pool of water up there, and they take a sample, and all the proper methodology... And it's strained for DNA. And of course, you know, he's let down by all the other findings. Like there's a skull, a piece of skull or (laughs) flesh or a finger from a monastery. And it turns out to be an ape or a orangutan. But this water, here's the most interesting thing to me. And I'm not giving any spoilers away. This has been out for like four or five years now, at least. The DNA that came back was 99% human. Right. And I found that fascinating because... That's not a place where apes go or live or have ever been.
0: I think the only ape-like animal that gets that close is the orangutan. I think it's genetically the most close to us, I think.
1: Yeah, from my research, right. It's still debatable here because I, you hear different numbers still bandied about all the time that our closest ape cousins to humans are about 97 to 98 percent and some, now I've heard 99%, but I'm, I'm going to go by the last thing I read was 97, 98% or so, uh, the DNA matches. However, <laughs> as, uh, as it said, uh, or even Neil deGrasse Dyson says that you shared DNA with a banana. Okay. So right. <laughs> it's, right. people have to expand their thinking. And of course, different animals, you can get very close. Of course, uh, apes, one of the, uh, the five families of humans is very close to us, but not exact. So when you say 99%, that should not be there in that pond. And the chances of contamination are very low. You would find if it was contamination, it would be human. It would be 100% human DNA. Yeah, yeah. So something walked through, sat down, soaked its bum, took a drink out of that pool. And the only other animals that should be there other than humans are goats and uh, mountainous uh, animals that are found in that high of an elevation. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'd like to remind people of that, that sometimes the evidence is pretty astounding. Well, the Arizona Game and Fish Department does not investigate Bigfoot sightings either. So neither does the State Veterinarian's Office, a division of the Arizona Department of Health Services, Perhaps the only organizations that take such reports seriously are Bigfoot Hunters or the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, the BIFRO. But we're going to come back to Arizona Game and Fish tonight.
0: Yes, and, and one more quote from that article. Back on the reservation, Lieutenant Burnett wants outsiders to realize that the department takes these calls seriously, and so should you. Quote, the calls we're getting from people, they weren't hallucinating. They weren't drunks. Mm -hmm. They weren't people that we know can make hoax calls. They're from real citizens of the Fort Apache Indian Reservation, end
1: quote. Right. So that article is from 2006, but as recently as 2014, according to one website, a sociology student also reported a sighting of something strange when she was out on a hike on the Canyon Point Trail, again, close to Payson. Uh, Yes, this is coming to us from the Cryptozoology News. Her name
0: is uh, first initial Y and then last name Estevez. Quote, it was on its knees drinking water when I found it. Drinking, making noises like a pig. So at first sight, the animal looked like a pig to me. Mm. I figured it was just a pig, kind of hairy though, which seemed a little odd for a hog. As soon as I made a little noise, the animal turned its head and looked directly at me. Now that's when I freaked out. It was staring Mm. at me. (laughs) <laughs> so uh now she's getting scared and she decides to try and make herself look super big
1: <laughs> ah always good advice no that's yeah. what they say uh yeah. tried uh, it still that's works get get out that uh, standee that theater lobby standee you carry around with yourself so there's at least there's two of you now well here the creature gets off its forelegs and stands on its hind yes. legs it has long hair gray and bluish and i swear it looked like one of those trolls from a fairy tale ugly stuff the face was human looking, no hair on it, but full of bumps. The eyes were kind of a brown red, thick, big nose, small lips, no expression on its face at all. And then it took off running like a person, end quote.
0: All right. So that's one flavor of mysterious mm-hmm. danger along the Mogollon Rim. There are, however, others. We're pretty sure that a large swath of our audience has heard the story of Travis Walton. Yes, that Travis Walton.
1: Indeed. Walton's story is one that we've been meaning to cover for years, but just haven't gotten around to it yet. So for those of you not familiar with it, we'll give you a brief overview. Tonight's show is not about his abduction so much, but it did take place in the exact area we're looking at. And I was reminded of that by our guest coming up. Yes. In fact, the exact area we're looking at here, if you were at the Magion Rim Visitor Center, you'd only have to go a little over 17 miles due east as the crow flies to get to the spot Travis Walton was taken from and where his, uh, his logging crew was. It would only be about 23 miles by roads and trails. And that's right. For those of you who are not familiar,
0: on November 5th, 1975, Travis Walton and six other men were working on a logging crew on the Mogollon Rim in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. They were about 11 miles due south of Heber, Arizona, and leaving for the night when they saw a UFO hovering over the trees about 110 feet from their truck. Well, they
1: claimed it was making a high-pitched buzzing sound, and Walton got out of the truck and walked toward it to investigate when he was hit with a bright beam of light and, according to him, knocked unconscious. The rest of his team got spooked and fled the area in the truck which I, I understand that decision. I know a lot of people, they criticize them. It's like, you don't, yes. you've, not, you've not been in that kind of a situation yourself. <laughs> so, but it, yes. yeah, they felt bad. So, and having seen the UFO depart in the night sky, they did go back 15 minutes later, and then neither Travis nor the UFO were there or anywhere to be found.
0: He was missing for five days and six hours before making a phone call from a payphone in Heber, Arizona, about 10 miles from where he vanished, just a little after midnight on November 12th.
1: And of course, watch Fire in the Sky, I thought it was a pretty good, uh, not totally, uh, of course, nailing all the, uh, the elements of it. It's not a documentary, but I thought it was a pretty good dramatic portrayal of that incident. Yes. Well, according to Walton, he had a pretty horrific experience being observed by three short, bald beings whom he struggled with before... Something that looked human and wearing a helmet of some kind led him into another room where they put a mask on his face and then he fell unconscious. He wound up recalling a bunch of horrific details later under hypnosis and has both passed and failed various lie detector tests. And some of his memories include being forced down on a table.
0: Yeah, this is a pretty controversial case to this day with investigators on all sides of the belief spectrum about it. And Mm. we're not investigating it tonight, but the fact that it takes place in the same region contributes to the fabric of the backdrop of the story our guest is going to be sharing tonight. Well, this brings us to another phenomenon that may be present on the Mogollon Rim. The Navajo culture referred to a being, that's actually a god known as Coyote. Now, Coyote is part of their creation mythology and notably has been around since before human beings. Coyote is incredibly intelligent, omniscient, and most significantly, has trickster-like qualities. From a paper that we found online called Coyote and Navajo Religion and Cosmology by Guy Cooper, there's a couple of excerpts that I wanted to say about this. Coyote's characteristics here are thus of the typical trickster figure, greedy, vain, foolish, cunning, and occasionally displaying a high degree of power. The other thing that's interesting is in part of their uh, origin myths about the coyote, coyote came along after what the Navajo referred to as first man and first woman. So coyote shows up in their creation story just after that and, and essentially says to them, you believe that you were the first persons. You are mistaken. I was living when you were formed. And so there's, there's a lot of research you can do here and looking at this stuff. And I wound up going down the rabbit hole on it. We're not going to get into that uh, right now tonight, but it goes back to beings that preceded mankind that came from a mist and that later there was like a, a pool, which they call the medicine bundle, which is what life came forward from. And then they move up through these different layers from this deep underground, dark, wet world to the blue world. And that's the one where First Man and First Woman were, I believe, and then Coyote was like, yeah, but guess what? I was already here. But Coyote is also a very, very intelligent being, and it seems like its goal in life
1: is to push the boundaries of order. Well, to your point, we've covered this and talked about this before, starting from the stories of Skinwalker Ranch, in that there are old traditions of uh, ancient myths and legends about a race of higher beings of sorts, or ones with more power and magic, and they get tired of human beings. They were here first, they had to deal with us, they didn't really care for it, and then we proved to be so horrific or just uh, annoying that they go into the mountain. And they say, we're not going to deal with you anymore, so we're leaving this world behind. And to me, that's that liminal space, perhaps in solid matter, but it is uh, multi-dimensional. So we've talked about, yes, the uh, the Middle Earth, the inner earth, the places uh, that people don't think that anybody should be living, like the time machine, the Eloy, (laughs) and the the Morlock, that they're underground, but there's not really a space. It's a spiritual space. And occasionally they come back out. And one day they may come out and challenge us for our space again. But for right now, they only pop out sporadically. This is Trace Conger. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, my own notations on Coyote is that it also, the spirit, embodies wisdom and folly, both of those. That's what I'm saying yes. earlier was kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, like the rim itself. Mogion is, is a, it encompasses the whole dial, the whole spectrum, high, low, hot, cold, one of the state to the other differences of ancient cultures to modern ones, where there's a through line of still respected and passed down traditions. But those have been altered throughout the eons of time here. But essentially, the trickster remains kind of the same in a lot of traditions and a lot of thinking, in that it comes up time and time again across uh, different countless cultures throughout history uh, and humanity. And you've no doubt heard us bring it up on Astonishing Legends before, like a lot. It's not always necessarily a being. Sometimes it's just the actions of these unseen forces, like what happened with the NIDS research team back on Skinwalker Ranch when Bigelow owned it, uh, Robert Bigelow. Uh, Whatever was going on there, it just seemed to know and was ahead of all of the experiments and schemes or whatever they're trying to do. It was always one step ahead and foiling it. So when they set up a recording device, it knew in advance when that was going to happen. It knew before they knew where they were going to set up. It would do different crazy things like put a uh, post hole digger. Was it 70 feet up a tree?
0: Yeah. Can't remember how high, but it was up a tree. It yeah. was <laughs> it was
1: very high to get that thing down. And, uh, and the three bowls that were wired into the old rusty cattle trailer... The only way to get them in, there may have been some kind of materialization, teleportation. And what's the point? Like they were in a trance. And this is what I wonder is that I'm not totally certain it's a prank. But like I say, with being scratched uh, in a haunted house or your batteries dying, that it may be a side effect. Well, whatever was going on at the ranch, they just seem to know in advance and they would disable a lot of stuff. And I think it's also not wanting to be. recorded, recorded
0: or observed, explained,
1: defined by us lower species, they're ahead of us. And it's a message that they will always be ahead of us.
0: Yeah. And not only does this make it impossible for you to gather proof of what it's doing, it drives you completely mad trying to figure it out. It's like in the Mothman prophecies when Richard Gere's Mm -hmm. character becomes obsessed with seeing his dead wife just one Mm -hmm. more time. And mm-hmm. Now, that's a fictional idea, but the gist of it is exactly what the trickster does. It it strings you along.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as we were just discussing with Rich and uh, John Gillian and others, is that the point of that is that it's a lesson. You can lose everything chasing the answers, and you'll never get there. The next answer is always one step ahead of you, and that's the game. So what do you learn from that? You can either keep chasing the answers, and maybe you'll get some, but not all, or you can go on living your life and enjoy it. Well, tonight, we're inviting Jay to join us. Jay is a former wildlife biologist for Arizona Game and Fish Department back in 2010, and they've spent years working in the deepest, most remote parts of the Monguilin Rim, alone about 95% of the time. Jay had a lot of fascinating experiences
0: doing that field work, as you might imagine, but more importantly, they are a rational, scientific-minded person with a dedication to empirical research and structured observations.
1: They're not one prone to take irrational experiences at face value. But sometimes, no matter how rational and scientific you are, you have an experience that defies explanation and leaves you wondering, sometimes for the rest of your life... What just happened? Sarah, please roll our conversation with
0: Jay. Well, we would like to welcome Jay to the show. Jay actually sent us a story that is what inspired this entire episode. So we thought what better way to follow up the research and background that we did with someone who had some actual experience in this territory and working in this region. Jay, thank you for joining us on Astonishing
2: Legends. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So have you been a
0: listener for a while now or?
2: Yeah, I found you in early 2019. I was honestly interested in all of your Ghost Flight 401 and the Amelia Earhart episodes. And I've always been into just weird mysteries that might be explained now with more information. More people have shared it and the truth was lost in the headlines. So, I was really interested in that, but I just kind of fell in love. I really like I like the community of people here and I really like the fact that you're willing to look for the truth and look for what's out there and then you're also willing to share your biases as like this is our perspective and this is what we're researching and if we're missing it help us be better and help us share the correct information from the right people. Like I really, really appreciate that about this community. So. Oh,
1: wow. Thank yeah. you. Like, you're almost like a paid. Uh, yeah, a
2: paid, no, like, like I stick nice. with you guys cause you're good. So. <laughs> right, thank yeah. you. Well,
1: that's what we appreciated about your email. It seems one, you had a professional connection to the area we're going to talk about and yeah. also your mindset about it, the science and skeptical background but open-minded and not pushing this weirdness away, but trying to find out what's going on here. What does this mean? What happened to me? And so we, we appreciate that approach as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just quickly
0: tell you, we have a very interesting update on Earhart, for the first one in a long time, coming out in November. I'm very excited. It's not a mystery solved, but it's very interesting. Uh, it's going to be an interesting take on it, something that we haven't really talked about before. So I'm excited. Yeah. All right. So, well, without further ado, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what put you in this part of the country and where you were and, that led to this series of events that you wrote us about?
2: My background is in science. I've always wanted to be a biologist. And so I went and got my undergrad in conservation biology and ecological restoration from ASU. I was born and raised in Arizona. And my family is from the White Mountains of Arizona. And I grew up in Phoenix. But I spent my summers along the Mogollon Rim. So if you've ever been to the Arizona area, Phoenix is where you have to fly into. It's pretty much the only airport there. And then if you drive north and east out of the valley along Highway 87, you get to see this really beautiful part of Arizona. It's the Snorin Foothills. So think like big granite boulders and cactuses growing out of rock, big saguaros. It's absolutely stunning. But it's a pretty windy mountain road all the way up into Payson. And that's at the base of the Mogollon Rim. And so that is where I was working in 2010 for uh, Game and Fish. I had been working off and on as an intern uh, for Game and Fish since I was 18. (laughs) I really wanted to be a biologist, so I started volunteering as soon as I could. And in 2010, there was very little in the way of a job market. So I was thrilled to have full-time employment. And the fact that I got to be in some of the most beautiful country in all of the U.S. was amazing. But the area I worked was game management units 3A, 3B, 3C. And... It's basically if you follow Highway 260 from Payson all the way through Pinetop Lakeside. And so that's about 70 miles. And then you go all the way north towards Winslow and a little bit south to Young. And so I calculated it and it's about 500 square miles was the area of land that I was my study area. So I kind of cruised all over that for the summer and... The cool thing about that area of land is it's the Mogollon Rim, and it's this beautiful place where the desert comes to an abrupt halt and the land juts up a thousand feet, and it's a continental shelf or an ancient continental shelf. Obviously, there's no ocean there now, but there's uh, fossil dig sites that you can actually just go right off the highway, and they're public dig sites, and you can go find trilobites and really cool stuff from the Devonian period. And you go literally from Sonoran Desert straight into this, like, mixed conifer, scrub oak, and The weather goes from being like 90 degrees in Payson, and then all of a sudden you're on the top of the rim and you're looking like straight down a cliff face. There's a highway on one side and a windy mountain road with a little guardrail on the other side, and you're in pine trees and there's snow on the ground, and you're just kind of confused at how that happened in just like five or six miles of highway. But it's absolutely stunning. And because of that cliff face, the weather changes because storm clouds will basically hit that cliff face, rise up really fast, and the weather just changes instantly. My job was to go hike into these box canyons and look for black bears and sign of black bears. And it was kind of comical. I had to set traps to catch bear hair. So basically, <laughs> I was baiting like these balls of barbed wire with leftover jelly donuts and like <laughs> rotten fruit. Wait, it, did you just take that from Yogi or what? Like, <laughs> no, I thought I was joking when my boss said, "Just go to the grocery store. They know that you're coming. They've set aside" expired fruit produce and expired pastries and it was like you have to be kidding me we're getting expired pastries and the pastry people came out with like just a thing of jelly donut filling and it was like candied cherries that and I had to hike around with like a five gallon bucket wow. of it to bake these traps <laughs> um,
1: well was, I would scratch myself up for it. a donut yeah. you know though I can understand that <laughs> you didn't uh, was all the hair analyzed later for a species
2: Yes, that that was the goal of the project. Due to the recession, though, I was laid off, so I don't know whatever happened to this project. Well, we all were Um, in
1: 2010. Yeah, it was rough. (laughs) No Bigfoot hair. I'm just going to put that out there. Nothing uh, anomalous?
2: No, no. I do know the samples that I did get back while I was there. It was deer, fox, and bear. So that was all we got.
1: However, that place is known, as you said before, for cryptid sightings. I imagine yeah. there are some purported Bigfoot sightings around there.
2: Yeah, we don't call it Bigfoot up here. We mm-hmm. call it the Mogion Monster because oh. we have to have one.
1: Sure.
2: Uh a fun name for it. But yeah, there's all sorts of sightings of random creatures in the woods. And my dad and my uncle, like they've always told me stories about people walking in the woods or Bigfoot, and they would just try to scare me. And when I became a biologist. I just started learning to hear what the forest sounds like. And an elk bugling is a really terrifying Mm -hmm. noise when you're by yourself. Yeah, A bobcat screaming sounds like somebody is maybe getting murdered and then you see it make the noise and you're like, okay, that's really just a cat or a fox or baby bunnies make terrifying noises (laughs) Mm too. So when this experience happened to me, I had a really hard time trying to justify and like explain what happened to me because I've heard people talk about Bigfoot. I mean, we've all seen the famous Bigfoot film. Travis Walton is famous up there. He was in Heber, which is that whole area was part of my study area, which is the famous 1975 Travis Walton alien abductions in Arizona. And I've heard about those things and I was like, oh, they're probably just loggers, maybe had one too many beers, like tried to cover up that they made a mistake or got lost. I don't know. I came up with a lot of logical explanations for these things until weird things happen to you and then you can't explain them anymore. And that's when it gets really, really hard. So I've shared this story with other people without any of the spooky supernatural stuff. I leave out all the spooky stuff as a cautionary tale of like, be mindful when you're out in the woods that you're very much by yourself. And as I have become more open to weird things happening, really thought about what happened to me, I'm like, nah, this is weird. And I think more people... Have had weird experiences happen to them as well. Sure. And then I've also heard other stories that were similar to mine, and it made me not feel like mine was weird anymore. Right, so, right. but I'm happy to share it. Yeah. And like, I want people to know because now I know that something weird did happen to me, and that's worth sharing and worth knowing more about it's worthy to know what happened to me and what happens to others.
1: So, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, And that's the, the job you love is investigating our natural world. And I believe this is part of it. It's just a very rare part of it and sharing that information for the benefit of humanity. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about rather than just keeping it to yourself. And I yeah. think part of what you said is it's not only to know or find out what happened to you, But when you share these stories and the weird parts, you have a little comfort knowing you're not weird. Like, I'm not crazy, right? I mean, this has happened to you? Like, yeah, something similar. And there's a little bit of community that's built around that because a lot of people do leave out this stuff. And I do wonder when you hear these stories or something that's odd. I have a a very good friend uh, from college who grew up in Flagstaff and nothing major has happened other than, you know, seeing strange lights in the sky zigzagging around But you collect a lot of stories having lived and grown up in that area. And that's just part of the natural environment, not only of folklore, but of natural history. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of natural history uh, record keeping. So thank you for sharing your story. Because when you have all the details, this is really a head scratcher. And when I got to the end of the email, it's, you can't think of anything that would explain this. Some things are just... The physics don't make sense, as I say about a lot of my own experiences. So that's the background here. You are working in the summer of 2010. You were out in really remote areas. As you say, a lot of just two-track roads that you had to map yourself because they're not even on Forest Service maps. And, And just to paint the picture here, if you were to set this up before this incident happened, is that you were basically traversing the ridges and then you have to go down into a canyon because of course that's where the water is it's where the creeks are that's where the bears are going to be and it's pretty strenuous the way you described it having to traverse all that rough rocky land and get down there and get back up and you have a lot of square miles to cover.
2: If anybody's hiked up there they know that what could be just looking like a two or three mile hike in and out will have close to 2000 feet elevation change because you just go straight down 75 feet and then straight back up. And so I would drive these two tracks or forest service roads as far as I could go safely in my very beat up pickup truck. And then I would just like fill my backpack with jelly donuts. And <laughs> I would look for livestock or game trails. And then I would just kind of walk the game trails. They already know what's the easiest way in and out. And then I would get down and then I would use my GPS and like my map to try to locate myself. And I have my super cool field journal cause um, It's not science unless you write it down and you take good (laughs) notes. And so this is my Write in the Rain, Write in Rain, all-weather journal. So it's waterproof paper and you can write in pencil on it. It makes you feel really fancy. (laughs) This was July 1st, 2010. And I started my day at 6 a.m., During the summers, you try to get as early of a start as possible, not necessarily to avoid the heat in that area, but it's to avoid the intense monsoons that hit really, really unpredictably. Like I said, those storms come up along the rim out of nowhere and can be really dangerous. When you're down in canyons, you have to just be really aware of the weather. And so on this day, I managed to do absolutely nothing I literally, it just says, hiked in canyon, starting at a waypoint. But from what I remember, I had been hiking down into the canyon for only a couple of hours when it just started to downpour. And everything just turned to mud and scree. And the area I was in just started flooding fast, like I wasn't in any danger of being swept away by the water, but water is just pouring down the canyon walls, making it really difficult for me to get out. So I was just kind of scrambling up these really steep areas, hoping that I could get my GPS to work because I had no clue where I was. I was following game trails and I just knew if I kept one side of the canyon, like follow the canyon walls and I would be able to find my way up to the road. And my GPS wouldn't even turn on. It couldn't even pick up a signal. And this is 2010. So this is when you had to, like, pray that there were no clouds in the sky because your GPS wouldn't be able to triangulate because you needed, like, nine satellites in order to figure out where <laughs> right. you were. And then it's only accurate for about 20 meters. So you're, like, somewhere in here. When I finally scramble up out of this canyon, I hit the road and I'm, like, sweet. I have no idea where my truck is. I could be north of my truck or south of my truck. I'm soaked to the bone. I'm cold. The rain is sort of letting up, but it's just kind of that not quite a mist, but just enough to keep you soggy sort of rain. And I hiked about a mile or so in the wrong direction before I was like, yeah, my truck isn't this way. And I had to hike back the other way. And at this point... The sun's now setting. Like, I really just spent my whole day trying to find my way out of this canyon. And when I say the sun is setting, that just means the sun is going behind the canyon walls. So the sun may still be up, but it's getting dark in the canyon because I can't see it anymore. I knew that I was going to find my truck. I knew I was on the correct road. Like, I could see the mile marker signs. Like, there's still, like, little mile posts. So I knew I was there. I just needed to get there. The sun was still up outside of the canyon. So it was just getting really dark down in the bottom of the canyon. But maybe like another 30 minutes and I would have started panicking that I was really, really lost. But I, as long as I knew I was on the road, I was going to be safe and I would be eventually able to get back to my truck where I had more supplies. And I remember cresting a hill and I finally see the sun catching the headlights and the turn signal of my truck. And I literally jumped for joy. I like was like, ah, <laughs> yes. And I was so yeah. excited. There were dry socks. There was food. I was so excited. But right now, even just saying it, my stomach drops thinking about it because the truck was facing me and its headlights were facing me but you know if you take something heavy out of a pickup truck like the truck bed will shift and come out and it did that it leaned towards the driver's side and I could hear the springs of the truck kind of shift but nothing was off the side of my truck like I could see it nothing came off and then out of nowhere this man appears He wasn't there, and then he was there. And I said, hello? And he just kind of waved initially. And then I kind of noticed what he was wearing. And that's when I got nervous, because he was dry. (laughs) He was not soaked to the bone. It had been raining for hours. He was kind of... I think I described him as like unambiguous descent. He just looked like he had been living in the sun forever, like an old piece of leather, very clean, short hair shoved up under a hat. I couldn't tell what color it was, but he just looked like an old piece of leather that had been worn just like thick wrinkles, thick lines, crow's feet, thick wrinkles in his forehead, just very strong facial features, but no facial hair. He was about my height, and I'm a tall person. I'm 5'11", and I would want to say, like, late 50s. But again, with, like, such tanned skin, it's really hard to tell. But thin build, like, definitely not a muscly guy, but not skinny in any way. Just, like, lean. Far too clean to be living on the land and not strong enough (laughs) to be living off the land. And he was wearing white New Balance tennis shoes, like gleaming white out of the box and painter's pants, like Old Navy jeans with like the loop on the side, dry, free of mud and a button up short sleeve shirt and a baseball hat. And he looked like he belonged in a Costco, quite frankly, (laughs) not in the middle of nowhere. And I said, hello, again, like, hello? And he said, hello. Hello. And I was like, what do what do I do? I took a couple steps closer, and I think he kind of realized that I was freaked out because he took a couple steps back. And I asked him how he got there, and he said that he hiked there. And I just kept staring at his shoes because I was caked head to toe in mud. You couldn't walk down these roads without it. It's clay and these sharp pieces of shale and red rock. You can't walk out there without being covered in this red volcanic clay. It gets on everything. And his shoes were so clean. I just... It baffled me. And he said he needed a ride and that he was lost and that he waited by my truck. And the thing that then made my stomach sink more is he said he's seen my truck before. And that's when I was like, oh, (laughs) because I drove a white unmarked vehicle. It was just a white F-150 short bed, unmarked government vehicle truck. And the fact that he had seen it all over, but I never saw anyone. I worked by myself. I would occasionally run into a forest service worker, like once a month, but I didn't run into hikers. I didn't run into random off-roaders. I was in the middle of nowhere. How could he have seen my truck? Where did he see me? I've been working in the field for probably about six years at that point, and I've I've worked in more hostile situations along the border where you have migrants, you have border patrol, you have this. And so I've, I've had people wander into my camp. I've had people approach me at my truck before and all they've ever wanted were directions. And so at this point I'm thinking, what's company policy? Company policy is not to give people rides. So I'm not gonna give them a ride. Also, I'm by myself in the middle of nowhere. I can call for help later. Like I can leave him with supplies and I can take care of myself. Oxygen mask on me. And in my mind, that's what I'm thinking. I'm going to get on my radio. I'm going to call it in. We'll figure it out. Just another problem. Just another day at the office. But it's still like, definitely don't want to help this person and that's not normally like me I get a weird vibe there's a hunch no thank you and I told him I just needed to get into my truck and get my radio that was my link to headquarters there were no cell phones so I went in through the passenger's door and I left him on the driver's side of the vehicle and I slid in and I can't get my radio to work It's still really remote and I'm in a canyon, so I have to use repeater towers. And if anybody is a ham radio nerd, they will know that repeater towers are basically a tower that you can call into, open it up, and it will repeat your signal at a stronger strength so that people further away can get access to it. He's just standing right outside and I was just gonna roll the window down and say, I can't give you a ride and I was gonna ask him if he was with Forest Service. Sometimes Forest Service has random people. I don't know why this guy would be here, but maybe he's with the Forest Service and I could call Forest Service to come find their lost human. And then I don't know really what happened. My radio wasn't working. I couldn't open the repeater tower. It was just broken. So I'm waiting to hear the dials again to see if I can open it up. And then it's like my memory just goes to soft filter. It's like somebody turned a switch in my brain. My memory is just cotton candy. It's like somebody put a big cotton candy ball in my brain. I'm driving and he's in the passenger seat next to me. And I'm very aware of what's happening, but I can't stop. Like I can look around, I'm piloting, my body I guess is the only way I can say it is like, I'm not controlling it, I'm just like sitting here. And this guy, I don't remember him opening the door, I don't remember him getting in the car, I don't remember putting my car in drive and driving down the road. But he has cranked the heat up full blast in my tiny little pickup truck. It's very small, I'm sweating. And he is like a raccoon in my car, in my like truck bed, in my lunchbox. I had like a igloo cooler lunchbox. And he's like just going through, eating everything. Like a little squirrel. He's opening up my glove box. He's just like, he's doing everything. And then the next thing I know, I would have to look at my map again, but probably like seven, eight miles away at a crossroads where two roads have met and one is going to go towards like public areas. And then I would be going and backtracking on another road back up to my base camp. And I told him, Get out of my truck. Like, go away. But I don't even remember him responding. I just said, I can't do this. And then it was like time had jumped forward. It was like, okay, this is interesting. And then he got out of my truck. And I just remember him kind of (laughs) laughing about it. And he kept telling me that I was too nervous. And he's like, you're just too nervous. You're just too nervous. And I was, like, in my mind thinking, like, that makes me feel more nervous. (laughs) And instead of walking down the road towards any of the public campsites, he just, like, walked off into the woods in the opposite direction. And I was, I didn't know how to handle that. So I just drove back to my base camp and... Again, it's probably like another five miles or so to my base camp in the opposite direction. But I just remember he went that way and I drove off this way. And he, again, he was on foot in tennis shoes. It's also dark at this point, like full sunset. And my base camp was set up in a little parcel of land that used to be cattle grazing land that had been fenced off for conservation. And so the whole plot of land was fenced in these really high elk fences. If you've ever encountered an elk fence, they're like, I think 11 feet tall. And they have really small barbed wire squares all the way up. So they're really, really gnarly to get through. You would have to cut through them and the road into it has a big gate and you have to have keys to get through the gate. I still haven't radioed back to headquarters yet. And so that was my first order of business is letting them know I'm okay. And so I'm sitting in my base camp in my truck and my headlights are just kind of illuminating this big open, meadow with like a pond in it and it's just surrounded by huge ponderosa pine trees and it's pitch black but my headlights reach the other end of the meadow maybe 50 yards away and I'm finally able to open the repeater tower on my truck and I've got a hold of headquarters and I'm letting them know I'm okay I'm late. And I'm staring out at the meadow in front of me and who do I see but the man from before who has somehow traveled in impossible distance and just appears out of thin air, like out of the forest from the complete opposite direction from where I just dropped him off maybe 20 minutes earlier. Like there's no way that he could have made it there any faster. And he's just casually walking towards my truck. And I'm now panicked. I am now fully freaked out. And my truck then just kind of shuts off, like it just cuts. It all just stops, no more power. And so I kind of am distracted by it and I'm looking, checking to see, can I turn it on? I can't turn it on. And when I look up and it's been like three seconds and he's more than 30 yards closer, he moved impossibly fast, but he's still walking casually like he would meander just, No care in the world. And the thing I also remembered was that the grass, like there was probably a foot and a half worth of meadow grass just out in the field. It didn't part. It was just like he was not affected by it and the grass didn't, nothing happened. He just was kind of walking. I blinked again and he was at my window and he was laughing and laughing and laughing. And this time his eyes were black and all of those sharp features before that just kind of seemed friendly were now just sharp and sinister. And he was not amused. He was angry. And I had noticed that he left his baseball cap. Like, you know, some guys will take their hat off and just shove it on the dashboard and he had left his baseball hat there. And he just wants his hat back. And so before it felt like a dad who belonged more at a Costco had showed up at the side of my truck. Now this was a very sinister, the undertone of like, just malice. Like he wanted me to feel scared. He wanted me to be afraid. And he made me feel very afraid. He was just yelling, give me my hat back now. And then he just would laugh. Like, it was cartoony, villainy, but also terrifying, the way he would laugh as if he enjoyed how scared I was. And talking about it now also makes me go like, that was a far more terrifying experience than even my brain likes to remember it, just because he was right next to the window, just yelling at the window. And I had the hand crank roll down windows and you just roll them down maybe an inch or two to just shove it out. And he just grabbed the hat and pulled it out. And as soon as he grabbed it and started to step back, my truck turned back on and he just kept laughing and then walked away. And I didn't know what to do because he just walked away again impossibly fast, like spanning this distance of 50 yards or so in seconds in a casual walk but then I could still hear him laughing and he was 50 yards away but it sounded like he was right next to the window and he just disappeared like I saw him clearly in the headlights and it wasn't like he dropped down and it wasn't like he just fell back into the trees he just disintegrated and was gone and then the radio call never ended headquarters was still on the radio asking me where I was which doesn't happen (laughs) when you turn off all of the electricity to a radio it closes it and it turns it off so how that was still open but my whole truck shut off I don't know But I was so terrified that I didn't even pack up my gear. I literally grabbed my tent and all of my equipment and just shoved it unfolded down into the back of my truck and drove all the way back to headquarters because I was absolutely terrified. I thought that somebody was going to come murder me in my sleep because I was still convinced that that was a real person, that that was a human being. and. Now, like looking back at all things considered, that's a really weird experience. Did you
0: have a firearm? Were you required to carry one when
2: you were out there? I was not allowed to.
0: So you've got no real personal protection beyond, unless you know jujitsu or something.
2: No, <laughs> I was I was very, very much alone. Very, very alone. And it, it really hit me seeing that guy standing there. I was like, oh, I'm alone. I'm, I'm very alone.
1: And, and just to describe that radio and what you're talking about here, because that's also an interesting fact. We had a uh, radio back in my old days. Scott will appreciate that. When you're a tape vault person at a post-production place, we had a truck. We I would make deliveries of uh, tapes and elements. And we had a radio. And to get a signal, it's not like another walkie-talkie. In this case, this Motorola, you have to first click the mic. So you, you do the uh, press to talk. And then you'll hear a, and that lets you know the channel's open now with your base station. And then you can communicate and you, that's why I think what you meant opening up a channel and being on that line and that's still open. And when you turn that off, you have to initiate that again. Yet they were still on that open channel. Yep. I didn't really occur to me when I was a kid, but I would watch uh, emergency 51. And when they're at the fire station, you can hear the do, 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 beep, beep, is making these tones. That's the signal, the call going out through other fire stations Coming to that station and then it would land. Well, that's engine 51. Okay, that's for us. And if you ever have your cell phone near a a speaker and you can hear the interference, that's a little bit like what's happening is sometimes you'll hear that it'll kind of make that noise. And then eventually your phone will ring because that's the signal coming through to your device. That freaks me out because how did it turn whatever that was, turn the truck off? Yet that signal is still an open communication line.
0: Yeah, this is not a handheld radio. It's wired into the truck, right?
2: Yeah, it's it's a wired in. Uh, it was actually an old game warden truck. The reason it was unmarked is because it used to be a police vehicle and they didn't have money to give us a different truck. So they just took all the police decals off of it. So yes, I would, in the middle of nowhere, turn all the lights on and pretend I was... <laughs> and now we're getting down to it. Yeah, you get bored. Yeah. If you get police lights. Yeah, um, why not? You might as well.
0: Oh, that's hilarious.
2: They weren't like mounted on the top or anything. They were just like a single bar yeah. in the back of the <laughs> truck, so it didn't look like a police vehicle. Still, still
1: cool. And you got switches. You got rocker switches on the inside. <laughs> They're fun to play with. Another odd thing about this guy's encounter is his personality and demeanor. Like you said, he seemed by your description, genuinely angry because he wanted his possession back. And you don't remember what kind of a baseball cap, if there's any logos, any team, just plain.
2: No, just like a plain old, like baseball cap, not trucker Mm -hmm. cap. And it was like pretty curved and worn in and just kind of like a, the only crusty thing I would say about his clothing was that.
1: hat. Well, it's his favorite interdimensional hat he wears on all of his trips. Uh, Do you remember the color of it?
2: Like a super faded blue or gray, Mm -hmm. like maybe once was a blue hat and is now just like super faded into gray.
1: I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. The other thing that strikes me is about his personality and demeanor in that he is genuinely angry. He wants his hat back. And as soon as he gets it, he's laughing maniacally. And then he waves goodbye. Like, you just switch personalities, like, so quickly.
2: He just, like, waved and just casually, just like he waved at me when I first saw him. Like, just... I do this every day, (laughs) scare people in the forest. And yeah, it seemed definitely like a game that I knew none of the rules to. And he was playing to win. At the time, I truly thought that I had just run into a weirdo in the woods. And I didn't feel comfortable carrying a gun after that. I just started carrying wasp spray. Which has a range of like 20 feet. So that's all you really need. But I truly thought that I was just worried about a random person. And so I moved my base camp from there to be further away, but I was camped with a bunch of Forest Service workers. So I had more people around me at night and more consistent communication. And when I told some of the Forest Service people about what happened to me, and I was still convinced it was a person. There was a Navajo guy working for Forest Service, and he laughed at me and told me I had a run-in with Coyote. And that's where I thought, huh. And I really sat on it for a long time. I was still trying to process what happened to me. I still can't explain how his shoes were clean, how he moved as fast as he did, how he got from that intersection where I dropped him off to my base camp. Like, he, he would have had to be, like, he would have had to teleport. He would have had to cover himself entirely in Scotch guard from head to toe. He would have had to be stalking me for the entire time, knowing where I was, where I was going. And in science, we talk about, like, what's probable, what's possible, and what's plausible. And I go through all those things with this story. Like, what's probable and what's possible don't line up. (laughs) And that's where I just have to say I don't know. But when I heard other stories about people encountering people that shouldn't be there or people who move impossibly fast or you lose time or people who have supernatural experiences and they say their brain goes like cotton candy and they lose time. I, I'm like, okay, there is something to this. If we are all having a collective stroke, even if like <laughs> there's mm-hmm. a very logical explanation to all of this, it's important for us to understand what our brains are doing but it's hard to try to find a logical explanation when these are so much more common. And people have similar experiences all around the world from every walk of life. And I don't know what happened to me and I don't think I'll ever be able to explain what happened to me, but it did. And if it is coyote, like coyote is a trickster, God of the Navajo people. And I'm not an expert on indigenous culture in any way, shape or form, but um, he's a sacred spirit to the Diné people. And he is like my indigenous friends will say, like Coyote is known for scaring white folk (laughs) off land. So when this guy at the Forest Service told me, he's like, oh, yeah, you just he was telling you you were too nervous because the one thing about coyote and folklore is he doesn't hurt people. He doesn't kill people. Does he scare the living daylights out of people? Yes. Will he steal all of your cows? Sure. (laughs) Will he like set a barn on fire? Yeah, but nobody ever gets hurt. Like he's not malicious, but he does not want you there anymore. Quite frankly, it's the most, like at this point, the simplest explanation is like the easiest thing that fits everything is coyote. And so in my mind, I've made peace with myself just saying I had an encounter with something that wasn't human and I don't know what it is. And this makes the most sense so this is the language i'm using for it but i think that's the other thing is we have a lot of different words for a lot of the same experiences and so that's why i think sharing these stories is so important cuz like i say coyote and other people might call it like a black-eyed child i've heard those stories too or like this or that and so i kind of just said yeah I did. I had a visit by Coyote, and he definitely got me to leave that land very quickly. (laughs) I did not want to go back there.
1: A lot of people say when they have encounters with otherworldly beings, especially when there's a heightened emotion, fear, sadness, anger, any of those, that they somehow also feel that this being is getting recharged by this heightened emotion. Did you feel that? coyote the visitor here the vanishing man not only was he amused but was he did he seem recharged did he seem like nourished by your fear
2: ah uh, he seemed to genuinely enjoy it i don't know if he seemed recharged but he was definitely nourished and he ate all of my food like that was the <laughs> other right. thing i'm just remembering was, this yeah I was so hungry and I'm driving back home. And I just remembered that I went and he ate all of my food.
1: <laughs> like a wild animal. I was starving yeah. on the
2: way home. Yeah. Like empty cheese stick wrappers, yeah. empty plastic bags of snacks, like just random stuff in my lunchbox. It was all gone.
0: So I have a couple of questions about that. The One one is the the cooler that you mentioned that he was ransacking when you just woke up to yourself driving him was that cooler like in the cab on the bench seat you had a bench mm-hmm. seat i presume or like or did you Yeah have- just
2: like a solid bench seat and it was just like not like a big one yeah. with a hinged lid it was just one of the little ones with like an arm that you folded down and you could take the top off of it okay, and it yeah. just fit it was just like a day cooler that i kept in my truck to keep my lunch and food warm for the day and i had a bigger cooler back at base camp but it was just like a little one that sat in my front seat with food in it
0: All right, I have to ask you the question because we always get the emails later. All Mm -hmm. due respect. uh, Were you ever under the influence of anything while you were working?
2: No, I was not. Okay. Nope, I um, that's a big no-no when you (laughs) work for (laughs) state agencies and we we would get randomly drug tested. So
1: no. It's a safety issue. I mean, as you said, the woods, as everyone says who don't believe in any of this, the woods are dangerous enough as it is. People get lost all the time who are incredibly experienced it's very easy to just get turned around and then nobody finds you so i think for yourself as i don't know if you kept any of the rappers i I don't know if i would if i but just as evidence that it happened is that you he was physically there he's not in your mind he ransacked your cooler ate all your stuff and the rappers are still there and we just talked about this in another encounter we interviewed somebody for And it reminded me of the fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't know if you've seen that that animated movie, is that he's very intelligent, they're erudite, and yet they eat waffles like a bunch of hungry, ravenous animals, which is hilarious, but not when it's in your cab happening next to you.
0: Yeah, it's coming up for us across a wide variety of stories and different types of encounters with strange and unusual people. Is this that frantic eating that doesn't make sense?
2: Yeah, it was so weird we've all been hungry and we've all really (laughs) wanted snacks before, (laughs) but like he was just like, like frantically eating regard. Like if he ate a wrapper, it wouldn't have surprised me (laughs) because he was just frantic about it. But it felt like the only reason he Chose to, it felt like a choice to interact with me every single point. Like he didn't need to interact with me, but he was choosing to do this. And it felt like he chose to do it because it was either like kind of boredom, very much the vibes of a teenager that's like, I'm bored, so I'm going to be the problem today. (laughs) And then excited that he made me scared. I think he was a little irritated that I wasn't as scared as I was initially. Maybe he came back because I was just like, no, go away and carried on my way. And then he came back and made sure I was proper scared in order to leave.
1: And like a lot of people who stay, they, they leave a piece of clothing. So they have an excuse to come back.
0: You said you were driving about 20 minutes. Were these at freeway speeds or
2: where you dropped him off or no, like 30 miles no, an hour, 45 miles an hour? Slower than that sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm looking right here. Okay. I have some a map open and it looks like I went about from where my pickup truck was to that crossroads on the map. And so the hard part is I don't have my old map with me, so I can't see exactly What the first crossroads I would have hit would be. But the first crossroads I see on this map is about six miles away. So I drove probably about six miles from where my truck was to where I dropped him off. And then it's five miles. And so the roads, it's just two north south roads that come together in like a V. And I was on the east one, drove all the way down, dropped him off. At the south and then drove up this other road about five miles up this way and then my camp was over here so he would have had to go like around and down
0: it's almost like a a v-shape he would have had to travel 11 or 12 miles in 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and then why couldn't he cut across the middle from one side of the v to the
2: other side of the v there's a massive canyon in the middle okay. of it, so I mean, <laughs> that's what I like. Was, that's what I was thinking. That's what I. There's a lake. Yeah. There's okay.
0: So he had to have a like a helicopter the, or something. There's yeah. no way for him to get there. And then the other thing to reiterate here is he also knew your destination. That there's no way he should have known to this other place you were going. Yeah. And you know what that reminds? Are you familiar at all with uh, Commander David Fravor's Tic Tac UFO incident? And mm-hmm. so do you know, you know that like when they lost it, it turned up at the point that was part of their mission. It was a rendezvous point for their mission. That was classified mm-hmm. information from the Nimitz, I believe it was, about where the, where they were supposed to be going next. I think they called it the cat point. Was that the cat point, Forest Or whatever they referred to it as. But right. anyway, that craft just magically appeared where they were going. Those are the parts of these stories. It's okay, that's a UFO. this is a guy. things are different, but then, and then, as Forrest said, we just talked to somebody who described a very strange individual who came into a bar and frantically ate potato chips like a raccoon, like just shoveling them into everyone was staring at this person and then the, so the, and then that person vanished. so the I guess the main part of it is is very different, a person versus a craft versus whatever. but then there's these other really common things that seem to be happening, which does make you wonder if it's all part of one phenomenon that's just presenting itself in different ways to us.
2: It's so interesting. So science is my background and I'm a big physics nerd. And so I used to be UFOs or UAPs are baloney and now, like, we know so much more. <laughs> and, but my whole thing the reason it makes more sense to me now is our understanding of gravity and the fact that we're making these massive jumps in gravity to say that, like, there isn't the possibility that there is the way for us to harness gravity, space, or time in a way that we literally cannot comprehend we cannot perceive it yet because we don't have tools. It's out there. We know that there are things out there that we can't understand. So I have a feeling it's like that sort of level of things. Like We just may never know in our lifetime, but it's worthy of understanding. And the one thing I've noticed in all of my independent research of spooky stories or supernatural things is that If there's a weird thing with time, so for me, when like time got fuzzy, or I like lost time, and suddenly he was in my truck, and it was driving my truck away. It was also so skips in time, but also skips in space, like he could jump distances. And so we know, it's never just time travel, it's time and space travel. It's never just teleportation, it's time and space travel. So they're always a little bit connected, right? Together, right. space
1: time, and you experience spooky action at a distance. Talking about physics terms, and I've yes. always amazed that science, real serious science, would even include the word "spooky" in it, because that suggests uh, that's just a feeling. It's just like I mean, it's they're describing something that shouldn't be happening, but it's observable, or quantum entanglement. Now, okay, and that sounds more scientific and normal, and, but. That's an accepted term, the, the spooky part. And it was definitely spooky because this should not be happening. And yet it
2: did. Yeah. Magic is just science. We don't know yeah. how to explain it yet. And so there's like big arcs in science history. I love science history. Yeah. I always think it's really, really interesting. And to quote Men in Black, classic movie. 500 years ago, we thought the Earth was the center of the universe. 300 years ago, we thought that the Earth was flat. Yesterday, you thought we were alone in the universe. Imagine <laughs> what we'll know tomorrow. And like that's the yeah. attitude I try to keep. Because 10 years ago, Pluto was like kind of still a planet. We we're having to rewrite our understanding of genetics daily. Like We're going to know so much more in 10 years. And True scientists will keep an open mind to the data that's coming to them and be open to their experiences. Because if you start discounting data just because it doesn't align with your view of the world, that makes you a really bad scientist. (laughs) So
1: I agree. Yeah. uh, The
0: other thing that's going to happen is they're going to start feeding the data to AI and it's going to start creating hypotheses that we can then check as humans, but it's probably going to make huge leaps forward in terms of figuring things out. I mean, just yesterday, I read an article where some student had, there was um, these scrolls that were burnt by the eruption at Vesuvius, I think in 79, maybe 79 BC. AD, okay. yeah. And AD, AD, sorry. and And a student had developed an AI to read the text on these scrolls that are basically barely holding together. They're burnt. And then the writing is also charcoal, by the way. It's like a mixture of charcoal smeared onto it and they they managed to get a word out of it which uh shockingly apparently is purple <laughs> something to do with the color of some clothes or something but what's fascinating is all these years, because they discovered these, you know, decades ago, they were like, We're never going to be able to read this. We can't open it. We can't touch it. It's just sitting there waiting for us to know something, and we will never be able to look at it. And now they've developed this AI that managed to identify text on it. And they're going to start throwing the AI at medical e- experimentation and all kinds of models for climate and all that stuff. So we're, we're probably going to start getting this, you know, it's not perfect, but we'll probably start getting a lot more data because it won't require humans to go to school for. You know, twenty years, and then do research for another twenty years. It'll require them to do that, but now they can analyze way more experiments than they can personally undertake, which I think is means we're going to have just an explosion in new information, and it's amazing when I think about it. So, but but also to your point about being a good or bad scientist that's you know something we talk about on the show a lot is that and we've talked to scientists like Avi Loeb who is you know who's at Harvard and is working on the Galileo project trying to find you know and find actual evidence of non-terrestrial craft or or interstellar craft that has crashed here or maybe there's artifacts from and he talks about how some of his colleagues and peers will not get outside of what is already known at all and then if he puts something forward and it's just a hypothesis or an idea, they won't even accept that discussion. I guess what, for me, this story, uh, your story, Jay, given your disposition, your experience, your knowledge, your time in the field, being in this part of the country, you are one of those witnesses that, for me, is unimpeachable. And it's very, very... I just want you to know, I believe your story, like, to the core.
2: Thank you. I really... I really appreciate that. I've never had somebody be like, no, that didn't happen to you. But I've had friends be like, come on. okay, whatever. Like you just ran into some weirdo. And like, I can tell a good story. I I like storytelling. (laughs) I have lots of funny stories about being in the field. And I never once tried to tell that story as a funny thing. I always told it as a cautionary tale to say, this is the real danger of being out by yourself is you're truly alone. And you have to be able to think about your own safety in those moments. But now I'm just kind of like, there's more out there in the world. (laughs) And I don't know. And if anybody else hears this and has something similar, just like know that there's lots of other people who are there. And I find that the more I share about it the more other people respond and i've never had anybody flat out say that i'm lying which has been very nice but it's still (laughs) especially my very scientific friends my very logical atheist friends are kind of like "Hmm." and i'm like listen i'm not doing this for a youtube video i'm not doing this for the gram (laughs) i'm finally now over a decade later sharing this with more than just people I know directly, because I think it's worthwhile to share it. And the funny thing is, I've never been back to that area ever again. I actually assigned that section to another Co-worker and was like y'all can deal with that. And then I actually worked back closer to uh, Sholo, which was like the other end of my unit. And I worked in like residential areas where I was like parking in a neighborhood and walking <laughs> nice. out into Forest Service land because yeah. uh, I was a little I was a little afraid of being out in the nowhere.
1: <laughs> you earned a break. You earned a swap. What happened after all this? This encounter. You said you've had other strange things happen, but immediately after this, things kind of settled down, or what was your next collection of experiences?
2: Yeah, basically everything settled down up there, and um, since then... Since I've just been keeping my mind more open to different things, um, I recently uh, had to say goodbye to my cat of 16 years a few months ago, uh, which was very sad, but he lived a very long, happy life. And I was sitting there going, I wonder if I'm ever going to see, like, experience anything from him. Because lots of people talk about being visited by loved ones. And yep, a couple weeks after he passed, I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt him jump up on the bed and I saw little indents in the wow. edge of the comforter where he would curl up at my feet. And I saw the comforter move a little bit like he was making biscuits and I was like, you're good. <laughs> wow. We're good. And so yeah. that was like a very comforting thing. And a lot of people would be like, that's a horrifying <laughs> thing. And to me, it was like the nicest yeah. confirmation in the world. That whatever that was, maybe I was having a stroke. That's my other (laughs) joke is that all of these things were all just having strokes. (laughs) But I've had that happen to me. And that's not like super spooky, but um, that's one of them. And then as far as skinwalker stuff goes, so I got laid off like we all did in the recession. And I did what a lot of people did, which is you become a teacher for a little bit because they were desperate for teachers. And I started working at a charter school that caters to students who are out super rural. So this was like an online school before online schools pre-pandemic. And I did a lot of driving to different parts of the state and like, tutoring and working one-on-one with students and then administering state tests. And one year I got assigned to Tuba City. And if you've never been to Tuba City, Arizona, (laughs) it is on the reservation and it is one of the larger settlements in very, very rural Northeastern Arizona. And so this is like high desert. So freezing temperatures all winter long, but there's no trees. It's Prairie and Red Rock. And it's absolutely gorgeous, but it's a deeply Indigenous community. And after a day of like tutoring and testing, I had a handful of Indigenous students who were waiting to be picked up. And the sun was setting, and the building that we were in had been using had closed for the day. Um, like we were using their conference rooms. And so we couldn't wait inside anymore. And two of these students were very, very anxious, like visibly anxious about being out of doors after dark. And I was trying to be comforting and say, like, it's okay. Like, your families will be here soon. I'm here with you. And they're just like, no, we need to be inside. And I didn't understand. And when I asked them why, nobody would speak. And one of them just said skinwalkers. And then they refused to speak another word to me the rest of the time. And like, luckily their families came and picked them up in the next 10 minutes. But I've never seen a group of very like macho teenage kids get so scared. And so I was kind of like, to me, it felt like superstitious. Um, And again, I was still in this mindset that like, I didn't have a supernatural experience. Why would anybody else be afraid of this (laughs) stuff? And I was out camping and I'm trying to remember exactly where it's called Rose Creek Canyon, but I can't exactly even place where that is in the state, somewhere near Young, Arizona. My friend and I were camping and he went to school in Flagstaff and archaeology major and studied a lot of uh, ancient sites from the Hopi in a bunch of the canyons that are up near U of A. And we were telling spooky stories. And we heard a woman calling names in the woods. And yep, that was it. We, we literally packed up and we, we <laughs> noped our way right out of there. We did not stay the night, but we heard a woman's voice and We couldn't really clearly make it out, but it's just, it sounded like words. And again, like I know what animals sound like when they make noises. I know what it sounds like when a domestic dog is lost in the woods and is crying because it thinks it's dying. Like I know all the different noises and this was clearly a human voice, but there was nobody around there. Again, I can pull up Rose Creek Canyon on a map and show you where it is. And it's not like a high recreation space. We were, could probably find photos from it, but I think we went camping in October. And so nobody's out there. Most of the roads are closed for the season unless you have four-wheel drive. So I think there are things in the woods that would like to be left alone, and I am happy to leave them alone.
1: (laughs) Always good advice. Yeah. Just leave things alone.
0: All right. So I don't know where you come down on this story for us. I think it's a really amazing story. I'm going to be listening to it a lot and thinking Mm. about it a lot. But for me, I think Jay encountered definitely some kind of trickster. And when you look at the region and you look at the Navajo culture and specifically what Jay found out in their own Mm -hmm. investigation and Jay's own supposition, there was that it seems like it might've been a coyote, but if it's a coyote, we did try to find some Navajo mm. historians or cultural guides to come on and talk about this. But guess what? They don't want to do that. So we were unable to make that happen. But if so, it's like, isn't it interesting that it's updated its wardrobe with shiny new, new balances? And <laughs> well, just all of these things that are unfolding, yeah. this chain of events, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And Jay was basically told, no, you saw, you met a coyote.
1: Well, a coyote that shops at Mervyn's, I guess, Uh, (laughs) I know at some level, even I don't care what culture you come from. At some level, it's just the spectrum of belief. This could be the most ridiculous thing anyone's ever told you, or uh, the most frightening, or it's just part of our culture, and you bumped into it because it has an aim to mess with you, and that's what happened. And from my point of view, I don't know. You and I had an interesting conversation earlier today before we started rolling and all this stuff about what you found frightening about it, what I thought was intriguing and disturbing, certainly. And I don't know how I would react. It's such a weird, strange thing to come across. Would I just be still in that trance that our friend Jay was put under by this thing? Would I be mad and ate all my snacks? Well, probably at the time. I don't know how I would react because it's so outside of the usual human experience at least for people like us, if you live down there, I think you do your best per other stories we've heard and also per what Jay has told us in that these things are brought up and the responses from Native people is like, that's it. You got a name. We're done here. We're going to go inside before it gets dark. That's the rule. You don't need to know anymore. And you're responsible for your own safety if you don't follow these rules. But this is what we're going to do. And I have a lot of respect for that. But... On the other hand, is this scary to me? Well, I didn't grow up with these traditions. It's not part of my belief system or creation myths or any of that. I respect it. So I do believe there are very strange creatures, beings, entities, forces, things out there that we have no idea, and they take on different visages. (laughs) They look different to different people, depending Well, when describing the attributes of Coyote in appearance and actions, you do wonder if that matches ancient Native American lore and the legends that come down in those descriptions with modern-day sightings of something similar, or are they different creatures? And regarding that, we got an interesting email from longtime listener Pericles Bacchus, and this actually came in last year, November 4th of 2022, regarding the third episode of our Halloween series, where an Alberta Canadian rancher was describing coming across something that sounded like a wendigo on their property. But it also matches the description of something called the baycock, B-A-Y-K-O-K. And you and I were also discussing this earlier. And It's like, well, you know what? One thing that's interesting about that, it sounds like desiccated, weathered flesh stretched tight, jerky over jagged bones and skeletons. And that's its frame and it's fearsome. And I thought, was interesting is that by tradition and myth it preys on the warrior or the native hunter and i wondered if our guest for that story in alberta canada on horseback appeared to be one of those carrying a rifle as a Mm -hmm. warrior or a hunter and drew the attention of something ancient because i do believe that they came across something out of this world Or from another world and not human, and fearsome and dangerous. And they did the smart thing and and skedaddled out of there as quickly as possible. So, that is all just to say for my POV, I don't know what to label it. And I'm hesitant to put a label on anything that anybody experiences because, again, I don't know. They don't know. The native coworker of our guest, Jay, to him, that's what it sounded like. And to his point of view and culture and uh, sense of, how the world works, it's like, well, that's what you meant, because it lines up. Now, I'm thinking something could adopt that, all those characteristics, to masquerade as something that is known. And what I do believe is that it is part of a larger phenomenon. I don't know how yet it's all connected, but I think there is a through line, as you said at the beginning. There's something that is all part of the other side. And all part of something behind the veil that is mysterious and may have informed our earliest legends and myths as human beings. And in some form, those carry on today. So that's kind of my viewpoint about what's going on. <laughs> it's a lot of, I don't know, but it's weird.
0: Yeah, and I was freaked out by Jay's story when they told it to us, but what added another dimension to it for me was in looking into the research of the Navajo culture's specific definition of coyote mm. was the fact that coyote had been around since before mankind and had this omniscient mm-hmm. vibe to it. it. It seemed to know what was going on before it happened. And that is one of the through lines that I think is really prevalent here when you look at all this stuff. Now, so when you look at, like we said earlier, you talk about Skinwalker Ranch, they knew what was going to happen on the ranch before the experiments can be conducted. When mm. you look at other topics we've covered, the siren call of hungry ghosts. Mm-hmm. Or the vertical plane, they have just enough data to keep you on the hook, right. so you're actually communicating with them in these cases, and it's just enough to keep you invested, but then there's these glaring mistakes, too, something's mm-hmm. not quite right. So then you've got this paranormal charade happening, which seems to be a recurring theme. And yeah. then another thing that we've mentioned before, and I'm just everything is connected. Another uh-huh. thing that we've mentioned before, yeah. is that a lot of times when you are recording EVPs and you're asking questions, you get the answer to the question before you've said it or before you've finished saying it.
1: That's what happened to me, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's what happened to you. That's what happens to a lot of people. Mm. You put the question out there, and you're two or three words in, and the answer comes. So yeah. there's there's a control over, <laughs> not. it's not just omniscience, it's a control over time, possibly, an ability to understand what's going to happen before right. it happens. Right. And that takes me to Commander David Fravor's incident with the Tic Tac, mm where mm-hmm. the Tic Tac UFO went to their cap point. i want to read this quote from a transcript of, uh, of that, which he wrote into his report to Congress. Quote, as we turned back towards our cap point, roughly 60 miles east, the air controller let us know that the object had reappeared on the Princeton's radar at our cap point. This Tic Tac object had just traveled 60 miles in a very short period of time, less than a minute. It was far superior in performance to my brand new F-A-18F, and did not operate with any of the known aerodynamic principles that we expect for objects that fly in our atmosphere, End quote. Okay. So here we got this case of the actual object not only being able to proceed in a way that defies physics, it mm-hmm. also had actual intel and technical knowledge that was mission-specific to their mission. It knew where they were going before yeah. they could go there. It was, that was not information that it would have had.
1: Right. Well, let me pose this to you. Because this is one aspect, we've talked about this since the beginning, the grand unifying theory of the paranormal, broadly called and labeled, in that one of the more interesting aspects of the UAP, and therefore it has to be alien phenomenon, is that there has always been a description, especially by people who've been abducted, that there is a psychokinetic telepathic aspect to it what do we always hear so often it's like oh i was hearing this thing talking but it wasn't opening its mouth it didn't have to talk well what's more advanced oh they just got more flowery language than they because they've been more developed for about a hundred thousand years than us a million years and that they just got better at writing and communicating well what's the next step it's having me express my thoughts directly to you like with bluetooth it's just in your head. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. I can read your mind on some other higher level. You would be able to read their minds. And you have to be okay with that. And who predicted that back in the late 50s, early 60s? English philosopher. You could say futurist, too. Metaphysical guru, Alan Watts, predicted all of that. And that that's where it's leading. That's where it's heading. We get away from wires and and hard things to the aspects of the mind and those abilities. And that's where technology takes you. Now, you still need machines to fly around in, but how those are developed is, we've heard all kinds of way out there theories about uh, even craft being repurposed, like they're liquid in a sense and mission specific. So once it comes back to base, you just kind of melt it down in a way and it gets reformed into something else. Maybe that accounts for all the strange shapes we see, all the different things it can do. But on a biological entity level, if they are that at all, then they would be able to communicate without speech, merely by thought. And therefore, their powers would seem like magic, and that old saying there, in that we think it's pretty amazing and remarkable. How do you do that? How do you know what we're going to do before we do it? Well, that biological technology, you could call it, appears to us as magic, where to them, going back to the Mothman prophecies, is that they have a different viewpoint and a different angle, as we've talked about before in Captain Flatland. Uh, No, it's just
0: Flatland, a romance. (laughs) Right. Well, that
1: was the animation explaining it all, that if you lived on a two-dimensional level, somebody who lived and operated on a three-dimensional level and could see and seemed omniscient and omnipotent, that'd be remarkable. It's not. They're just on another dimension. They just have another dimension than you do it, Mr. 2D. So they know everything you're going to do before you do it. They, they know stuff that's hidden to you and can see it easily. It's not magic. They just have access to a different viewpoint. And so maybe that's what's happening here. But I would ask you, sir, is there any connection then to what's flying around in our skies and to ancient native myths and traditions like Coyote? Well,
0: for me, I think there's a possibility that there is because I see a pattern here. I see mm-hmm. an underlying thread weaving its way through the larger picture. Whether we're talking about Skinwalker Ranch, Siren Call, The Hungry Ghost, Vertical Mm -hmm. Plane, Bell Witch, Shadow Man, Coyote, they all seem to hold a mirror to one another. It's as if they're all part of a grander, more sinister narrative. Interesting. Do you
1: think it's all sinister, or do you think that there's good and bad, and that's maybe part of the lesson, the duality of Coyote itself? I think that's possible. Each tale, each entity, Each phenomenon knows exactly how to keep you engaged. That seems obvious. Every time, place, and culture has its own version of these experiences. So, as we all prepare to celebrate a global holiday that traces its origins to pagan rituals, Astonishing Legends would like to take this opportunity to remind you everything is connected, including the light and the darkness. Maybe all of these experiences are just different faces of a controlling force that will never understand, playing pranks on us throughout eternity, feasting on our fear and confusion.
0: that's going to wrap up our 2023 Halloween special and the last of three shows in a row for this month. We're taking a short break, but we'll be back in November with new junk drawers on Patreon and new main shows on our regular bi-weekly schedule. If you've enjoyed the first two episodes of our new show, Scared All the Time, it's time to go find and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcast, because the third one will be posted on their new main feed. Happy Halloween,
1: everyone. We are so grateful for your listenership. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah voorhees Wendell at VW Sound, and co produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vacola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Boland. C. H. Hi, my name's Anastasia Bennett. Hi, I'm Trace Conger. I'm going to try it again. Love the show. Thanks. A. C. E. I understand. Perpetuity.
0: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed
1: and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at deadstreetproductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription
0: available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon
1: request to AstonishingContact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at Patreon.com
0: AstonishingLegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer. Which is available every week, the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends
1: Productions. Good night.